I'd like for us to turn to the Word of God and look at Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 41 through 52. And this, these will be projected, but if you want to look in your own Bible, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Uh, this is a passage that often is uh, preached on, referred to in the church around the world on this particular Sunday right after Christmas. And it's because it's uh, the story of Jesus when he's 12 years old uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, one of the only stories we have from Jesus' childhood. So it's especially uh, pertinent to us in a time when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. So le- reading from Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Let me talk for just a minute here about foods. There are some foods that you have to learn to like if you ever do learn to like them. And lots of kids don't care for cauliflower, cabbage, cabbage especially if it's cooked, Brussels sprouts, turnips, or, and this is pictured for us here, asparagus. There are other foods that are not hard to like, and during the holidays, most of us enjoy some of our favorites. These might be pies, they might be smoked ham, they might be turkey with dressing, it might be some casserole. For me, it's my wife's Christmas cookies and her fruit cake, which is very different from most fruit cakes, and pretty much everything she fixes. I always say at our house, we eat like kings around here. And actually, if you think about kings in medieval Europe, we eat a lot better than kings. Now, probably none of us had to learn to like M&Ms at Christmas or any other time. And so this sermon's title may sound strange, learning to like our M&Ms. But I'm not talking about those M&Ms. I'm talking about two M words that describe what Jesus is going through in our Luke 2 reading. Now, of course, Jesus is going through many things. 
He's experiencing the annual Passover feast in Jerusalem. He's enjoying time with relatives and acquaintances. He's beginning to exercise adolescent independence from his parents, which they don't appreciate. He's sampling the means of grace available to first century Jewish pilgrims at the Jerusalem temple, which is pictured there, in the form of the ceremonies and the teachings that took place on a regular basis, but especially at feast times. It really was a feast, not only in terms of what they ate, but also in terms of the programs and the pageants and the teachings that were presented. But here we need to look more closely because key to what I'm going to say this morning is an observation about Jesus, which extends also to his childhood, that's found in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. And there we read, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus as a boy, was not a little wizard gnome walking around with God the Father's mind, knowing all things and confounding people with his smarts and his tricks. He was rather subject to our limitations. He learned, and he learned the hard way we learn, including by suffering. It wasn't just on the cross that Jesus suffered. Suffering describes the whole course of his life in which he perfectly fulfilled God's will, but in the end was misunderstood by his own family, as we see in this very text, and eventually deserted by his followers. This morning I want to argue that our Luke 2 reading points to Jesus' learning process. And we learn about two M&Ms that were part of Jesus' daily diet. Number one, his mandate, and number two, his maturation. These two M words are important because they teach us about our Savior, and nothing we can learn about Jesus is unimportant to us. But they are also important because they remind us of our task as Christians to be faithful to our Lord as our Lord was faithful to God, his Heavenly Father. Well, let us pray. Thank you, God, for the privilege of free access to Holy Scripture when so many around the world are denied it. Help us use our privilege from your hand to the max by hearing and heeding. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us consider first Jesus' mandate, the first M. When we survey the whole of the verses that we read, we see Jesus with his devout parents fulfilling the mandate of all observant Jews living within a reasonable distance of Jerusalem. Be there for the annual feast of the Passover. The first Passover in the time of Moses, over a thousand years earlier, is described in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. By Jesus' time, that original family meal in the home that's described in Exodus was transformed into a national pilgrimage festival. Jews from Galilee and Judea and elsewhere streamed into the ancient city of David, and they celebrated the shed blood of the Passover lambs that delivered Israelite households from the death angel. Passover also celebrated liberation from Egypt and entry into the promised land. 
About 20 years later in Jesus' life, Passover is the time when Jesus dies. And Luke chapter 22 locates Jesus' last supper with the disciples, his arrest, and his betrayal on the night when the Passover sacrifice was slaughtered and the Passover meal was eaten. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the death of the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. But in our text, at this Passover feast, we see Jesus' mandate that would lead to the cross, expressed in verse 49. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The King James Version translated, I must be about my father's business. And the message reads, I had to be here dealing with the things of my father. Actually, the word house doesn't occur there in the Greek. It's a difficult uh, verse to translate, and that's why you get different translations making different attempts to capture what's there. All translations agree that Jesus is calling God his own father, at least in conversation with his parents. And also Jesus refers to a must or a have to. And that's what I mean by mandate. He has a sense of personal duty and destiny before God. He cannot do otherwise. There's that famous scene in the life of Martin Luther. And the religious authorities of his day demand that he recant from questioning church teaching on the basis of the Bible. Luther replies, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. Throughout the ages, God calls on people to acknowledge him and trust him and honor him by fulfilling his will rather than what might be their own will. Jesus was only 12. It's easy to imagine that at some level, he would rather have been returning home to Nazareth like all the other 12-year-olds that were in the entourage. But he felt a divine compulsion. He sensed a personal tie with God, which is why he called him my father. And look again at Jesus' focus and his intensity. It's easy to highlight verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus, the savant. Jesus, the wunderkind, the prodigy. But don't overlook verse 46. Jesus was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Listening is a highly charged word in the Bible. Hear, O Israel, faith comes by hearing. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus excelled at what our first duty to God is, to listen to his word. Several verses in the book of Proverbs, which Jesus would have known well, highlight the folly of something that our society places a high premium on and gives us all license 
to indulge in, and that is self-expression without adequate listening and restraint. Just three examples, Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? By the way, this would also apply to a woman. There is more hope for a fool than for them. I'll go in the modern English idiom direction of the plural there. And Proverbs 18, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Sound familiar? It does to me. I can just look in the mirror and see all three of those people. Jesus had a mandate to listen to his father. He was not a preteen Superman flashing his omniscient brain. He is rather demonstrating a humble, God-dependent character trait that will blossom in his public ministry. Consider Jesus' words at age 30 plus, exhibiting the same spirit that he shows at age 12. Jesus said in, says in John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Or as Jesus says even later in John chapter 15, I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father. I have made known to you. Jesus confounds the elders at age 12, not because he is a boy God, but because he paid attention to the words of his heavenly Father that echoed through the synagogue and the temple, the synagogue that he visited each week. And we could add here a long section, if we had time, about the instruction of a Jewish child in the home through the daily prayers and scripture readings and recitations and singing that would have gone on there. Jesus was grounded in the knowledge of God through what he heard that had been given to God's people from God. He listened deeply to God and was therefore able to speak with a wisdom informed by God. What Paul said to Timothy, a Jewish boy a generation after Jesus, would have applied all the more to Jesus' learning from the rabbis and from the Old Testament scrolls they read from and from his devout parents. Paul wrote to Timothy, from childhood, You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. If Jesus is our Lord, if we seek to live in communion with him, so that by faith, his life is expressed through ours, our mandate too is to listen to God. It is to cultivate that sense of, I must be about my father's business. The question is, what is the Father's business in your life? That is your mandate. Do you know it? Are you pursuing it? Or are you shirking it, running from it, 
denying it or perhaps defying it by flagrant disregard or disobedience. Jesus also said later in life, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What a high privilege and a sacred trust. We may not like our mandate, our first M from God. What God lays on us can feel restrictive. And if it never does, we should ask ourselves if we are really living for God. There's a misconception that following Jesus is and should be a light thing. You can take Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 out of context and make it light. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My load is easy, my burden is light. But there's that verse 29 that says, take my yoke upon you, which scholars tell us is an idiom for becoming the disciple of someone. Take my yoke upon me, on you, and learn from me. Learn from me. And he gives the reason why that's promising, because he's such a skillful mentor. He says, for I am gentle, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls because of Jesus' teaching ability and ability supernaturally to inhabit our lives. Jesus was gentle and lowly in heart. He was not someone bullying his way through life, pushing his agenda, enforcing his will. He rather showcased a dependence on God the Father that invites us to become, he invites us to become students of. So that was his mandate. He had to learn obedience to his heavenly father through, for example, suffering the scolding of his parents. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. You know, and I expected to say, and they were so amazed that he knew this and he knew that and he glorified God by his wonderful answers. But no, his mother said, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. A mother's public rebuke is not easy for a 12-year-old to take. But not only then, but in coming years, Jesus put up with his fam family's lack of grasp of what he knew to be his mandate. It says there, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. I believe that every true follower of Christ in the course of time receives a series of mandates or assignments or tasks from God. You've got to do it. And you learn to relish the joy of the challenge and sometimes pain. It can be difficult and trying and some mandates take years. Other people may not understand your mandate. I run into this a lot with people who come to seminary, sometimes under protest from their own selves, other times because of other people that don't approve of what they're doing with their lives. Years ago, I was doing a, a, a retreat for a, a Chinese church 
in Manhattan, and we were out of Manhattan somewhere in New York, and actually it was at a, a Maria Carey's uh, place. She's got a sort of a resort area. We were, so we were there. And um, the, the Chinese pastor there who, who had invited me, who, who was a former student of mine, uh, he said one of the great crises in, in the, the Chinese church in North America is pastors. Is that they're, you know, they're multiplying in terms of the size of their community, but they can't find trained pastors. And they said a main reason is, is because no Chinese parent wants their son or daughter going into the ministry. They want them to go into uh, a field where they can make a lot of money so they can care for their parents. And if they become ministers, they're not going to be able to care for their parents very well because ministers don't make any money. So the mandate to be a minister is a tough one to follow if you happen to be Asian and your parents have other expectations to you, for you. So there may be interference from people. There may be ridicule from people. And even if you are faithful to your mandate, your efforts may not succeed in this lifetime. You may have a mandate to bear witness to Christ to a family member year after year after year. And that family member may or may not repent and come to saving faith. You know, it's okay if we accept a mandate from God that we don't see the fulfillment of in our lifetime. Jesus himself looked like he went down in flames. But you know, he's still raising up sinners to newness of life. We can listen and learn like our Lord Jesus did. He will make our service and our sacrifice fruitful, maybe in this age, maybe mainly in the next. But we can trust God with what we give to him by way of sacrifice of ourselves. Let's consider our second M, and that's Jesus' maturation. And here I'm talking about just one verse, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, or size, and in favor with God and man. Our world can consume us and monopolize our emotional and our intellectual bandwidth with alarms. <clears throat> Last year there appeared a book by John Dickerson called Hope of Nations, Standing Strong in a Post-Truth, Post-Christian World. And he cites six trends in this book that he makes out as disturbing for white evangelicals. Number one, the decline of Christianity in the United States and Europe. Number two, the drift towards socialism within the United States. Number three, the civil war of ideologies in the United States. Number four, the declining birth rate among seven segments of the American population. Number five, the rapid rise of Islam. And number six, the reshuffling of global economies and military might. China will soon overtake and dominate us. Dickerson projects. Now, all or none or any of these might be true in the ways that Dickerson depicts. But you know, Jesus lived in a world of Roman domination, political oppression, persecution of the minority, of which he was part. He was Jewish, and about 8 to 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish, often persecuted. There was frequent famine. There was overtaxation. There was rampant slavery. 
There was social and economic stratification where you were born into, you probably were never going to get out of, and gross injustice. You can study Jesus' life and see how often legal means were used illegally to oppose him. But from age 12 and leading up to that age, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. As he grew in wisdom, in size, in God's grace, and in human community. Jesus' life of maturation is a challenge for us not to forget that the most important thing in our life is God's guiding and maturing hand on our shoulder. Or if you don't feel that hand, it may be a wake-up call to seek a serious mandate and to get busy growing into it. In Peter's words, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus grew. This is obviously true physically. He went from babe in the manger to boy in his parents' household to apprentice to his builder father to public preacher in the wake of John the Baptist and so forth. But it's also true in other ways. Theologians speak of Jesus' filial consciousness. Filius in Latin is brother. This refers to his consciousness that he was in a relationship with God the Father that was unique, so unique that his fellow Jews thought that it constituted blasphemy. John 5.18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Theologians also speak of Jesus' messianic self-consciousness. Now, you and I should avoid a Messiah complex. But Jesus grew to harbor one, and rightly so. How did that awareness of being God's chosen one, the King of the Jews, the Lord over all, in oneness with the Father, how did all that come together in his psyche? What was the timetable? What means did the Father use to inform the Son as he grew in favor with the Father? Scripture offers pointers, and we can speculate, but we are not the Christ, and we never will be. And so we rightly plead finitude and ignorance of details about Jesus' inner life. We have communion with the Father through the Son and the Spirit, but we are not and we will never be privy to the inner counsels of the triune God. We are creatures. He alone is creator and God. But if the Son increased, if he progressed, if he underwent development, we can and we should too. We receive from God not only a mandate, first M, but also maturation. We can learn to like these things, our M&Ms. Here I think of Jesus' words in John chapter 4 when his disciples are trying to get him to eat because they're starving and they've gone to get something to eat and they bring it back and say, let's eat. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work. He had more of an appetite for sharing the gospel with the Samaritan woman than he did for his next meal. And I'm sure that Jesus did not make a face or hold his nose while he did the Father's work instead of eating. He described his mission not only as one of death and suffering, but of joy. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And that's the note that I want to end on. The promise of joy from our M&Ms. And I want to underscore it because churches are full of spiritual underachievers. Many Many on the membership roll seldom even show up, and that's not a healthy sign. But even many who attend with regularity do so guardedly. They keep the church thing and maybe even the God thing at arm's length. They view church and God as repressive. Religious commitment will hold you back. It will cost you, and life will be less fun. Fun, as such, is for children. There's nothing wrong, of course, with recreation and mirth in their place. I love it that the fruit of the Spirit right after love is joy. So by all means, let us celebrate God and the gospel in this incarnation season. But there is such a thing as empty celebration the show of peace and happiness, but the reality of casual attachment to God and unremarkable commitment to God. There's that verse in Proverbs 14 that says, even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. Christianity reduced to fun and good feeling is a caricature and perhaps even a sacrilege. The boy Jesus had learned already that the deepest possible human joy is the detection and the pursuit of God's mandate. That's the deepest joy in life, God's mandate. God himself who extends this mandate to us and enables us to begin to pursue it. That's the deepest joy, even if it's by means of sometimes painful growth and maturation. The Son of God, Jesus, learned obedience, and often it stung. Even at age 12, he calls us to discover the secret of, of what made him tick. Learning and eventually liking our M&Ms. Let us pray. Lord, we marvel at your son in every respect, from prophecies about his coming, to reports about his life, to accounts of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return to judge the living and the dead. Would you renew our sense of mandate and kindle in us the fire of desire to mature in your fellowship and service. In Jesus' name.
Amen.